I'm not a huge football fan. I actually don't know who the Panthers are. I think I've seen their logos a few times. But I was thinking about like hardcore fans, right? And uh, I've been a fan of the Lakers and Kobe for a long time. I remember young Kobe airballing a few shots at the playoffs, but I still loved him. And then him and Shaq, and then that hyped year with like Carl Malone and Peyton, right? And nothing happened. And then Paul Gasol joining and them dominating for a few more seasons. And then I remember uh, Kobe, uh, that last game where he hurt his Achilles. I was, I was watching it on TV live, and he hyperextended one knee and kept playing, hyperextended the other knee, kept playing, and then, and then he went down with the Achilles injury. And I remember, I remember crying. I, I like, a few tears ran down my face, especially when he was giving his interview and just, you know, he was hurting so bad and... And my hero went down, and, and now I'm feeling really lost. <sighs> I've never been a lost fan before. Like, rooting for the Lakers have all, has always been really easy, and now it's difficult. I've never been here. I've never been in a place where, like, we're the worst, one of the worst teams. We have a terrible record. We're rooting for draft picks. Never been here as a Laker fan. And, and a part of me just wants to jump ship. You know, like, Curry's looking really strong, right? Golden State. And then San Antonio Spurs, just their team culture and philosophy about raising leaders and team dynamics and humility. I'm, like, super attracted to them. But when I talk to my other uh, hardcore Laker fans, they are just so, there's almost a pride in, in this season of our Laker journey because because you're not a hardcore fan until you've, like, suffered for your team. You know, you're not a hardcore fan unless you can point back to the losing seasons and said, I still wore the jersey. Or you've mecca'd out to, like, out-of-state games and, and had, like, coke dumped on you, but you, like, still rooted for every point, right? That's how, that's how hardcore fans are. My friend, he doesn't own one piece of green in his whole closet because Celtics. And um, someone gets that. But, but I've never been here, and I'm not really looking forward to suffering, and I'm just thinking about jumping ship. I think my Christian walk can look like that as well, transition into sermon. So, um, you know, being an OC Christian, like, it's easy. It's kind of easy. And for some of us, we've grown up with the Christian faith. Our parents approved us and raised us to be Christians. Our closest friends are Christian. And it's so easy to be Christian. It's so comfortable, and we've never really had to suffer. And I think that sometimes when being Christian catches us off guard, um, it, can, it can make us question everything. Like, I'm questioning everything about whether I was really a Laker fan or whether I was just a fan of talking trash to other teams and winning. And I feel like when we suffer as a Christian, we're asking questions about our loyalties to God, whether we're really a follower of Jesus or in suffering, it might show us that we were really a follower of being socially accepted, um, wanting to be part of a crowd or wanting a community, um, wanting the blessings of God without desiring to suffer for him. And yet Paul ex- exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
He's saying that suffering is going to come as a Christian. That all of us who desire to live for God will suffer. And I wonder if that's something we've signed up for, suffering and sacrifice. Or if we just always thought being a Christian would be easy. It'd just be rooting for the winning team, cheering for our hero, and going home a winner. You know, Jesus, he has some really strong words to talk, say to his disciples. He tells them to count the cost. He says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to give up this life. He says that following me means a, not, means a sword that might divide up your family and your friends. And I'm not sure if our Christian faith or this Christian culture has really thought deeply and counted the cost of being a disciple of Christ. We can just be uh, riding the bandwagon. And then when another bandwagon has Stephen Curry crossing up to people five feet behind the three-point line and shooting threes, we're just like, oh, I'm here now, right? But Paul talks about persecution and suffering not from a hypothetical or a theological standpoint. He talks about it in a way that's engrossed in this context for which he's writing to the Philippian church. We're reading through the book of Philippians. We're at the last chapter and we think about even how the Philippian church was birthed. Paul and Silas was stopped from going into um, Asia Minor. And in a vision, this guy called out to them. And he said, come help us. And he's from Macedonia, which actually, last week I met a person from Macedonia from my apartment complex, which was like a trip. Uh, he said it was a little boring, landlocked, small. That's why he's in Fullerton. But it was, it was so cool. And um, so he goes to Macedonia. And um, he meets some Jews praying by the river. They didn't have enough people to start up a synagogue. And people start believing in the gospel. This woman especially, she has resources. She's kind of a gatekeeper. And they launch a church with her. But soon after, they cast out this demon uh, from a girl who can fortune tell through this demon. And the, her owners get mad. So they accuse Paul and Silas of starting like a, a revolution, of being terrorists. And they get beaten, they're thrown into prison, and there they start singing hymns to God. And at the baseline, at the foundation of this church plant, is that it's birthed out of suffering and persecution. Paul, as he's writing the letter to the Philippian church, is sitting in another prison in Rome years later, awaiting his execution. The Philippian church is going through heavy persecution this, this city is heavily Roman, extremely patriotic. Most of the Roman armies, as they were taking over the known world, many of them settled in Philippi. And so they just had strong allegiances to Rome. But it wasn't just governmental and political. It was religious as well. The Roman people uh, worshipped the Roman emperor. And they would do festivities where they had these like um, statues and would bow down and would pledge their allegiance to them. And here, on the other hand, the Christians were saying, we worship and serve another king. We want to expand another kingdom. What does that sound like to a Roman soldier? Treachery, terrorism. Um, and so they start persecuting the, the church of Philippi. They lose their job. They lose their lives. They lose their kids as they're imprisoned. 
And so Paul isn't just writing this into the wind. He's speaking from his experience. And he's speaking to a church that has suffered some deep wounds from persecution. And so as we continue into Philippians, it says, whatever happens, which is all-inclusive, if you think about it, anything that happens, any circumstances that comes your way, whether it's death or imprisonment or starvation or losing your, your jobs, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Keep repping the gospel. Keep worshiping another king. Keep living as citizens in another kingdom. Then whether I come to you and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. So Paul is saying, man, even in the worst of times, even in the strongest persecution, continue to live out your faith. But he, the second exhortation is he asks them to do it in community. That when you suffer together, when you're persecuted together, stand not as individuals. Don't get scattered, but stand as a community. Suffer together. I asked Mitchell Tao to share the story, and I remember meeting him while he was deciding whether he wanted to be a Christian or not. And one of his greatest fears was that if he became a Christian, that his parents would disown him and that he might get kicked out of the house and become homeless. He was really struggling with that. His parents are firm Buddhists, and part of the Buddhist tradition is that you want your kids to be Buddhists so that they would worship you and um, give to you as you pass on. You become a god in the afterlife. And so him becoming Christian would take him out of that system. And I remember it was hard for me because I haven't been through that, but I still... I looked at him and I said, Mitchell, like, this Christian thing, it's not supposed to be a secret. Jesus says, if, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Paul says, whatever the circumstance, live a life worthy of the gospel. You, you need to tell your parents. You need to be bold about your faith. But then I felt convicted about, from the Spirit, and God's like, dude, if he gets kicked out of the house, like, what, what does that mean? And you need to take responsibility for that. If he leaves this family, you need to be another family for him. I remember sitting down with Nina and saying, I just challenged Mitchell to talk to his parents and he might get kicked out. Um, do you know where the air mattress is? <laughs> and we were thinking, like, what does it look like to live with Mitchell Tao? <laughs> he cooks really well. Uh, he often brings donuts. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we were rooting against him. But... Um, he talked to his parents, and, and they slowly bought into his faith, and we put away the air mattress. But I think about how suffering Paul's exhortation is that we don't do it alone, that we are a part of a community because we get to strive for the gospel, continue to represent Christ, and take the suffering on together. Napoleon, as he was conquering all of Europe, he had this really crazy, um, like, elite part of his army where they would advance um, regardless of, 
of the onslaught of bullets and cannon fire, and they just brought such fear to their army. When he unleashed them, they would just march one step after another, shooting their opponents, taking ground unflinchingly. And this is kind of the imagery that Paul is giving. In the light of political and government persecution, he uses these these words of of advancement and kingdom and arminess, and he says, keep marching forward regardless of the persecution that you face. Then he says this line, he says, when they oppose you and you're not frightened, it will be a sign that they are headed towards destruction and you will be saved. You know, during that time, Christians were slaughtered in the most horrific ways, and and they are today as well. Back then, they would be put in Roman Colosseums and lit on fire. They would, be, they would be tied together, and these animals that were starved, lions, bears, wolves, would come out in packs and devour them. And there's these magnificent um, moments where these Christians, at the point of death, are singing worship. That's another kind of worship. They are praying for those who are killing them. And I just put myself in the lens of the prison guard, in the lens of the soldier, in the lens of the audience, and there must have been a little bit of fear where it's like, man, these guys, they really believe what they're talking about. They're willing to let go of this life for another life, and they have full confidence of it. That when we push them, their convictions and their beliefs to the edge of death, they still hold on. And all these people who are observing this type of, of fearlessness, they themselves tremble. And they have to question their beliefs and whether they're on the right side or not. And it's not only a sign to the persecutors, but it's a sign to the Christians as well that they believe something beyond comfort, beyond words, beyond worship songs on Sunday. They believe it to the point of suffering and that it's real for them, that this gospel is real. And it's hard to know if something's real until you suffer for it, that it's in suffering that our faith and our belief are purified. And we, we know that it's real. Like, I'm... My friends know that they're Laker fans because they're still a fan. And I'm getting weeded out. And I wonder if our church was being persecuted, how many of us would still be sitting in this room? And I, but the ones that are would know that our faith is real, beyond words, beyond our Christian history, beyond comfort. You know, the, the moments in my life that have defined my faith are seeing Christians who are persecuted, reading about them, and, and meeting them. And one of the earliest um, mission trips, actually my first mission trip, I went to China, and I met this girl who's, um, this was during the part of, of China's history where they were really persecuting Christians. Her parents were put to death for their faith, and she, the government officials told her, we could put you in an orphanage where everyone will forget about you and where you're sharing a bed with three other kids. And she had a sibling at the time. Or 
we can put you in another house where you'll be taken care of. All you have to do is deny Jesus, and we'll put you in another family. She was about 10 years old at the time, and she watched her parents die, and she said, I'm going to be a Christian. That no matter what happens, she believed that gospel was worth living for. And I wonder the men who were threatening her, whether they felt like they might have been on the wrong side of eternity, whether this was a sign that they would be destroyed. I know for her, it defined the rest of her life. You know, like, for her, being a Christian wasn't cheap. But in in the heavy cost, the gospel was worth that much as well. We can not think the gospel is worth very much because we didn't pay much on the front end of our faith for some of us. But then I also saw the church come around her, this, this standing firm in one spirit that she really wasn't alone. The local church got together and prayed for her and finally convinced the government to take her out of the orphanage into one of their families. A crew staff member who was ministering to a local church at the time, underground, heard about her story, and they ended up adopting her and bringing her to the U.S., and I got to track her down at Biola and say hi again, Um, because I was so sad waving goodbye to her in junior high. It was amazing to meet her as a grown woman, and I saw how whatever happened, she conducted herself as someone worthy of the gospel. I saw signs of her persecutors being destroyed in them and how she knew she was saved. And I saw the church, the global church, coming around her, helping her stand firm, advancing the gospel together. This early church historian said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. This last part of the passage in Philippians, Paul says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still had, have. You know, this idea of being granted uh, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's like we're given a favor, we're given a gift. And Paul's saying that our gift isn't just to believe in Jesus. It's not just a gift of salvation, but another gift he gives us is the gift of suffering. Merry Christmas, suffering, right? How many of us wants that for Christmas? I I had a hard time trying to grapple with, how is this a gift, Jesus? How is suffering a gift to your church? But I think about the profound things that suffering does in our life, what it means to the Christian to go through suffering. And we we touched on this a little bit. First, it allows us to identify with Jesus, It allows us to go through the journey that he went through. Jesus suffered to give us the gospel. And when we suffer to give others the gospel, we get to say, man, Jesus, like I get it. We're in the same boat. And and we get to connect and be intimate with him in a profound way. That when you suffer for the gospel, Jesus is with you. And I think that these men and women who sing hymns, who pray for the persecuted, Stephen, who's stoned and, and is 
still proclaiming the gospel, that these were the moments they were most close to Jesus. That it wasn't out of their strength. It wasn't out of their, their profound faith. It was that Jesus was close, the closest to them that they've ever experienced him. He was in front of them saying, man, I, I, was, I was persecuted and I have died for my faith. And now you get to know me in the same way. The secondly, suffering makes us choose a side. You know, when, when we allow our careers and our relationships and our popularity points to suffer, we are choosing the side of Christ. And, and suffering puts that line, that dividing line up, right? If you don't suffer, you don't have to choose. But suffering makes us choose. Do I want my friends and career advancement or money? Or do I want Jesus? And suffering puts that line down for us. And I think that's a great gift because maybe one of my fears uh, in my faith is that I never really chose Jesus. I just kind of took the path of least resistance. Suffering allows us to choose. It's a gift. And thirdly, suffering allows us to value the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. When I see our brothers and sisters around the world suffer, they're proclaiming at the top of their lungs that the gospel is worth more than their family, that the gospel is worth more than their earthly security, that the gospel is worth even more than their life. And it challenges me to say, is the gospel worth everything they're saying, or is it just something I do and hold on to when it's easy? I mean, they, they put it down for me. I think when we look at our lives, we have to ask, what trumps the gospel? Is there moments in our life where we, have, where we pull out the, the trump card and we say, oh, the gospel is, but the gospel's not worth this. The gospel is not worth me losing my job, so I can never share or talk about my faith at work. The gospel is not me worth losing my family, so I'll never tell them that I'm Christian. The gospel is not worth me losing cold points, so in this social context, I'm just going to be silent. When I... When I think about the gospel, I wonder, is it really worth my life? Because we get all these options to share the gospel or not. And, and I, I feel like it's easy just to say, hey, the gospel's not worth this. But then we're saying that other thing is worth more than the gospel, right? That our friends liking us and our jobs and everything else is worth more than the gospel, but when I look at Christians overseas, I feel like that's my challenge the most. You know, I, we do this Bible in a year thing, and people are laying down comments for this passage. And Ma- Marianne talks about, like, when she reads this passage, she can't help but think about everything going on in ISIS. And Molly talks about Urbana and how um, they, t- they, like, are aware and trying to gain um, understanding of, of the global church. And I feel like we have gifts to give the global church. We get to pray for them. We get to uh, give money to them. But they have a great gift to us as well. They show us how much the gospel is worth. And they challenge us to give our lives for the gospel. 
and not to be ashamed of it. I remember um, being in Singapore, and it was just an awesome, eye-opening experience because I got to sit with people from churches all over the world. There's a church in the Middle East where the ushers have AK-47s, and they're protecting their congregation. And one day they got raided, and this usher that I met, he took like seven bullets and protected his congregation. And I'm like, man, Winston, where's, where's, you know, where's our guns, you know? Like, um, and then I met this other brother. His name's Jabba. He's from India. And um, we became really close friends. I spent lots of time hearing his stories and sharing meals with them. And we just had kindred spirits. It was just easy to be with him. And we still uh, keep touch over Facebook. I remember I was sitting down one night. It was like when you pass like the sleep, sleep time and you become totally inhibited and just share your hearts, you know, and grab thighs and say, I love you, man. And so we were in one of those moments. And I was just listening to him talk about the early 2000s in India 200 Christian churches got burnt down, and a lot of his brothers and sisters were killed. And he said that they opened orphanages um, to accommodate to the kids of his brothers and sisters that had passed away. And it just, just church after church started getting destroyed, and I was like, how did it end? And he said, you know, the Christians in the U.S. prayed for us. I said, thank you so much. He said, man, they prayed for us. They heard our stories. They wrote to their congressmen. And, and um, the U.S. government put pressure on the Indian government to stop the persecutions because it was illegal, but no one was doing anything about it. But after the U.S. stepped in, they stopped, they stopped the persecution and they started putting down, uh, reinforcing um, re the laws that happened in India. Um, and I was like, man, that's crazy. And, and a part of me was just so sad that when I heard about it in 2000s, I didn't do much. I feel like Jesus, he, he stops in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, I pray that they would be one, that we are one. That the church as a whole, that we would hold hands. And that we would hold hands and stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters overseas by hearing their stories that we wouldn't turn a blind eye, we would subscribe to Voice of the Martyr, we would read Tortured for Christ, we would go and look for their stories, and secondly, we would own them as siblings. Like if one of you guys were overseas in prison, I would do everything in my power to free you guys. And, but they are my brothers and sisters like you are. And it's, it's, but it's, I feel kind of separated from them. How do I own their story so that it's mine as well? How do we give them gifts as a community that's so rich? And mostly, how do we receive their gift to us? Where they're saying, man, the gospel is worth everything and even my life. And so when I'm afraid of giving up cool points, when I'm afraid of losing my job at the apartment complex, when I'm afraid of being rejected, that I would think of my brother, my sister, who gave it all up for the gospel to advance, and it would make me courageous as well. I hope, you know, when, when we started Renew and even leading up to it, um, we dreamt about what it's like to be a church who's connected to all these other churches around the world. Um, I read Voice of the Martyr since I was a kid. And I would say I'm, I'm still not sure, but I hope that we could figure it out together.
Because it's so hard, right? Like, it's so hard to wrestle and hold all those stories in tension and then, like, share a beer watching a Super Bowl game. Like, it's so difficult. But I don't want to go home and cry all day. But I think I should go home and cry sometimes. And, like, you know, like, how do we do this? How do we do this living in Fullerton, being able to, you know, express our faith however we want to, um, enjoy life, be comfortable, and be Christian most of the time, and still hear stories, make sacrifices, and have in the back of our minds, man, people are suffering for the faith. And what does it look like for them to be our, part of our family, part of the renewed family? Because they are. Right? They're brothers and sisters before we met them. I, I don't know. But I hope that we can figure it out together. And I hope that we can start by just hearing stories, by, by praying, by caring, by owning them as part of our family. I hope that we can start by embracing suffering in our own lives, as big or small as it may be, and say, in these moments of suffering, man, I get so many things. I get to define myself as not just a bandwagon Laker fan, but as a follower, a real follower. I get to have the gospel become more valuable in my life. It's not just a cheap thing that I prayed for when I was a kid. I get to stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters around the world in my suffering, that I feel a little piece of how they suffered. I get to stand in solidarity with Jesus. Suffering is a gift, and it does so many things for our soul. And I hope that we would be willing to suffer for the gospel in every context of our lives. Today, as we take communion, um, I hope that we could pray for ourselves and say, God, have we dodged suffering and not seen the gospel as valuable enough? And Maurice talked about that, but we all get him, right? How have we dodged suffering socially, financially in our workspace? And how can I see the gospel as greater? And also, as we take communion, God, help me to see how much the gospel is worth, that you would send your son to die on the cross, that we are taking his suffering and partaking in it, consuming his suffering, his blood and his body that was, that was shed and broken for us. And allow us, God, in us consuming his suffering, be willing to suffer for others so that they could hear the gospel as well. Father, we love you. We give you this time, this space. We think about the places in our life that you're calling us to suffer in because you say that anyone, everyone who wants to follow you, everyone who wants to live a life worthy of the gospel, anyone who wants to be your disciple will suffer. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on our lives, that we would think, about the ways you've called us to suffer for your kingdom, about what it looks like to live courageously, to live boldly, to be unafraid. So that would be a sign to people who hate you. It would be a sign to ourselves and people who love you, the value of your gospel. We thank you so much for dying on the cross for us and for leading the way. You don't call us to anything you haven't done. You did it first, God. 
and you did it first for us. Help us to do it for others. In Jesus' name, amen.